This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. A friend of mine asked to have coffee with me who was going through a hard time, and I showed up high from the night before, and I saw the disappointment in his face, and it broke my heart, and... I called another friend who took me for a walk, and that's the day I got sober. That's the day it happened. This episode comes to you from 25,000 miles of untangling a life, returning to natal roots, and emerging with the strength of a day-to-day focus. This is the second episode in this cluster of three episodes about river guiding and the health of river guides. I do recommend that you listen to each episode in order, one, two, three, as the story builds on itself. In the last episode, you heard John Totten's story of becoming a river guide in Idaho and a sailing guide in the Caribbean, and how that endless summer lifestyle started to unravel. We pick up that story with John explaining his downslide towards what he calls the cellar, how a friend grabbed him, how he accepted that he needed help. For John, this help was many things to include a rehab program. After all of those major changes in his life, John made plans to move on to a new path. And in those moves, 2020 and all of those challenges came along and forced itself upon John as it did upon all of us. And during that time, John decided to take the conglomeration of his life and mold it into his mechanism that today helps John help others. And that story can only be told through John's words. My co-host for these episodes is Jenny Feebig. Jenny is a professional counselor in Montana and Colorado, a river guide and a river runner, and her counseling practice focuses on helping people work through traumatic events that occur in backcountry settings. Please know that each episode in this cluster deeply explores one person's use and abuse of alcohol and drugs and considerations of suicide. Those topics are discussed through firsthand experience. These episodes also follow this story into and through a rehabilitation program and into the same human's current success in life. Our guest and storyteller is again John Totten. We begin with Jenny asking him about how his transition from the good years of guiding into the unhealthy years showed up on the stress continuum. So I guess the question that I have, and it's kind of more about that green to yellow to to orange and red. So I heard you say like in the beginning of my guiding experience, it was like this place of connection. I was psyched to go to work every day. I was, I just couldn't believe I was here. As the years went on, maybe I'm hearing less of that green and more of that, that yellow and the orange and the red. How long did that green last for you? And then when did you really start noticing yourself shifting or using more in that five-year guiding career? I would say it was mostly green. To be honest, it was. It was great for the vast majority of it. It was the last year is when really things changed. Um, My role in the Caribbean changed, and so, and I wasn't on the water as much. That was really hard for me. Turned out to be a terrible mistake. But I think there was just a level of fatigue, too. Like, it it caught up with me at some point, you know? Um, and, um, and so I would say, you know, yeah, the first couple of years of the, the full-time guiding life was, was amazing. And then when it declined, it declined pretty quickly. 
um, to be honest. Like it was, you know, in a six to eight month period, I went from, you know, maybe dashes of yellow to like pretty red. I was in pretty bad shape, um, you know, all within one year. What did that look like? That that shift and what did it feel like being in that hard place for you, that that dark orange and into the red? It was uh sad. I remember being like a lot of uh, super negative self-talk, uh, just really beating myself up a lot. Um, and I knew I was a full-blown alcoholic and a drug addict at that point. Like there was no question, um, but I didn't know how to stop. I didn't really want to stop. Some days I wished I could, other days I didn't care. Um, and it was just a vicious cycle of trying to pull it together for whenever I had to be in front of people uh, well enough to do it. And I could lean on 20 years of experience at that point and I could fake it pretty well um, and make it happen. And then, you know, the big change was the partying went from social to solitary in that year. That was a big change. I was now doing drugs at the house by myself and uh, having to, you know, pre-party. I just never stopped. And, and then by the time I would get to the gathering, I was just a disaster, you know, already. Um, whereas in my earlier days, in the vast majority of my career, I was able to separate it. When I partied, I partied hard, but then I was able to, to be professional and not, like I say, not drink during the day and not get high and be there for the guests. And then in the moment that it shut off, I would put the pedal down, but that went away at the end. Um, and that's when I got really depressed and it was just, you know, I mean, when you're doing cocaine alone at eight in the morning, <laughs> like what the fuck, man? I mean, you, it, those are looks in the mirror that are awful. Um, it looks bad. I, I've, I've never been so disappointed in myself than I was in those, those times. Is that, is that the bottom, John? Like, where is this in the, in the timeline of your, of your journey? Is this, is this the bottom? Is this a, a platform before that? Is, is there lots of bottoms? I would say I spent about, I don't know, three or four months in the cellar, like as low as I got, like it, it, I was there for a while. Um, you know, there, there's a very specific day where I, uh, a friend of mine asked to have coffee with me who was going through a hard time and I showed up high from the night before and I saw the disappointment in his face 
and it broke my heart. And I called another friend who took me for a walk and that's the day I got sober. That's the day it happened. So there was definitely an event. There was definitely a, a moment where it finally, you know, pushed me to the point where I was, I opened myself up. I, I, I cracked the door as they say, you know, and, uh, luckily the friend who I called saw the crack in the door and kicked it in. Um, and, and I owe him my life. And, and so many of my friends and family have said the same thing. They were like, we just never saw the crack in the door. We never saw an opportunity where we thought we could do anything for you. Um, and I gave that person that I opened up a little bit and he literally grabbed me by the collar, like physically and said, we're doing this. And he dropped everything and he locked me in his basement <laughs> and we went through all my bags and found all the stuff and got rid of it all. And the journey began. So it, there was definitely a moment, you know, but I would say I was in the, like I say, I was in the basement for, for a while, for a few months. It was pretty gross. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today, we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes, even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. Before we uh, before we go down the the path of of talking about getting the collar grabbed and diving through your bags and all those steps, let's talk more about the bottom, the basement, the cellar. I feel like an unfair definition happens to that place that I, and that many people might just be like, Oh, that's the bottom. You know, when you're there, Oh, you like, it's time to get out. Okay. Get your shit together. But I think it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty, um, Oh, there's a lot more to it. Um, and I would like to, I guess I just would like to explore it. And I don't mean like, tell me about like how fucked up it was to look at yourself in the mirror, but I mean like, I don't really guess, I guess I don't know what I mean, but just, can you talk about it a little more? You've been there. Maybe just help me understand. I guess that's really all I can say is like, help me understand what that place is and like 
the fuck are you thinking about and feeling on a daily basis? And like, how do you cycle through all your feelings and your fears and your hates? Like you want to get sober. You don't want to, you go ahead and you do the line, you do this. You got all these feel. I mean, you, you're in your brain the whole time, whether or not you, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you're not, but it seems like you probably got, you gotta be at some level, you know, just, just talk to me more about that place, that time, that months of the seller. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing to talk about. It's a, it's a source of a lot of pain and a lot of shame uh, for me when I think about those last few months of literally multiple times a day deciding to stop. I'm going to do it today. And then, you know getting stoned or, or cracking a beer literally minutes later, you know? And, and so that, that cycle would happen over and over and over again. And it just got worse and I would feel bad all the time. Like I didn't feel good when I got high anymore and I didn't feel good when I wasn't high and, and nothing worked. Um, and it, it was very fake. There was so much lying to people and just trying to cover it up and, you know, doing things behind closed doors when there were people really nearby. And, and, but because I, I had, you know, whatever, a shocking tolerance at that point and was just kind of like that all the time. And just a lot of sadness, just a lot of sitting alone, embarrassed and ashamed and not knowing what to do um, and feeling helpless. Like I didn't have, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't have a plan because the path to help meant that I had to admit to somebody else that I was out of control and my ego wouldn't let that wouldn't let me do it. There was no way that I was going to walk up to someone and say, I'm out of control. I can't stop. I want to stop, but I don't know how <clears throat> I couldn't do it. And I was, and it was all I wanted to do. And I tried to make the phone call multiple times. I tried to, push myself to write an email or, or say something to someone. And then I, I never, I couldn't do it until I did, you know, until I finally, you know, I don't know, whatever it, it was an impactful enough encounter that it pushed me far enough to pull the trigger. But, but the, the months in the cellar are fucked, man. It's bad. It's really bad. I mean, thinking about, suicide every day every single day like what do you even why are you even here you know i've i've pissed away this incredible life that that you know almost everyone i know would would stab the guy in line next to him to live this life um and i'm just fucking blowing it i'm flushing it down the toilet and the shame and the pain that comes with that was like, well, there's one way out of here is to just end it. 
um, and and just getting really close to doing it more than once, and and then I don't know somehow a bird sings, a, a door slams, a, a horn honks, and it snaps you out of it, and go do something else, take a drink, take a bump, whatever you got to do, and you get on with your day, you know, as there's boats to load <laughs> and there's people waiting for you, you know, and it's, um, but it's shitty, man. Like I, I it's, 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 um, the worst thing. I hope I, I hope I never go through anything that bad again. Uh, cause it was the darkest part of my life. And then it's, yeah, I think it's the shame. I, I keep coming back to that. And that I was letting everybody down, disrespecting anyone who'd ever helped me along the way. And there are many people who made this fairy tale life I've been living happen. And I was pissing on them and didn't know what to do about it. Couldn't stop pissing on them. And just, yeah, just, just awful. John. Let's go back to the collar. Your your friend comes in, kicks the door in, like the, the he sees the crack in the proverbial door, kicks it in, grabs you by the collar, literally at this point, and you said he locked you in the basement, goes through your stuff, all the zippers and all the pockets and all the places that you stash, finds it all. What transpires from there? Yeah, I should probably clarify. Like it wasn't uh, uh, quite that controlled we did all that together mm -hmm. i mean it wasn't like i was uh bound and gagged and <laughs> you know uh it was i was very voluntary like i didn't resist him yeah but i also knew that if if i got out of his sight that i was probably gonna bolt um and so there was a huh. there was definitely a tether between us but he didn't you know actually lock the door and hold me in there i could have opened the door and left at any time. Like I wasn't imprisoned, but, but I was also being watched very closely. So I just want to make sure that it's not like, yeah. you know, it wasn't quite that um, extreme, but the reality was that if I had not been with my buddy Dave from the moment I decided to do it until he put me on the airplane to go to treatment. There was only probably a few minutes in a three day that took three days um, that we were apart. I mean, I bet you could count the minutes on on two hands where we were separated for that three days. Hmm. He dropped everything and just was next to me hmm. um, through that. And so we, you know, he hauled me to a friend of his. We went to we went to this woman's house who he knew who had recently been to treatment. And he was like, here, I have this friend, talk to her, let's figure out what to do. Because there was no game plan, we didn't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. I was starting to withdraw, and so I was starting to freak out. Hmm. And and my, I remember vomiting violently in this woman's house, who I didn't know that well. And it was like a mansion, and it was this beautiful home with these beautiful woman who was telling me about how she had gotten sober and then I like immediately run to the bathroom and I'm like retching in the toilet because I'm starting to go through this physical part um 
I remember very vividly that night, like in between VOMs, sitting on the bathroom in my own filth and having this like incredible moment of clarity. Like I'll never forget it and being like, fuck, I'm doing it. This is awful. But there was like a glimmer of hope. I remember it very, very vividly. Like the puke is dripping off my beard. It's gross. It's bad. My hands are shaking. And I had this moment of like, don't fucking quit. You're in it now. You have a chance to turn it around. And and at that point, I got hyper-focused. And I, I, we, we, we had to find a treatment center, which is a monstrous task, by the way. Like, we type in rehab into the internet, like, holy crap. I mean, it, it, the options are endless, you know, and which type of treatment center and where and the budget is crazy some of them are free and some of them are tens of thousands of dollars and it was like what the hell how do we even begin to decide you know and and tr going into rehab felt like the right thing to do i was like i want to go check in somewhere and like do a program it, it felt like the right move but to choose one was a daunting task um luckily we reached out to a friend of mine's wife who's a therapist who gave me a very direct recommendation to a specific treatment center called the denver recovery center in uh, just outside of denver in colorado and called them up they had an open bed and it's a thousand bucks a day. It's 30 grand. Oh. And yeah. And I was like, well, I don't have 30 grand and I don't have health insurance because I'm a full-time guide. The, the, I remember the lady on the phone going, well, actually, if you don't have insurance, we have a fund for 50% off. And so it went from 30 grand to 15 grand also didn't have that. And so then I had to call my sister. And I had to ask her for the money and tell her what was happening. I couldn't call my dad. I didn't have the guts to call my dad. I made my sister tell my dad. Um, and she did that for me because she's my big sister. She's awesome. So she she sent the money, paid the bill, and I got on an airplane and was checked in, you know, and started that whole ride of treatment. And it worked out. And that was a 30-day program that you entered at Denver? I did. Yep, I did yeah. a 30-day program. That was the minimum amount of time for that one. Uh, there were folks you could do an extension if you could or needed it. Um, but I signed up for a 30-day tour in there. And um, yeah, and it worked. It worked for me. I bought in. I had bought I bought in in the bathroom, man. I, I say that. like I, I had that moment where I was like, all right. It's game day. Pull your shit together. You have a chance here. Um, and so I, I did rehab with vigor. I did it with everything I had. I was, I journaled and I took notes and I studied all night and I spoke up at meetings, which was really hard at the, at the beginning um, and did everything they told me to do. All of it. It was it was definitely a lot of darkness in there. You know, the, the night one in a, in a dorm room with a stinky kid who's also, you know, as fucked up as you are and, and just going like, 
what happened, you know, I'm looking at the ceiling, just like super down, very sad, but not as sad as I was a month before, not even close. And so even though it sucked and even though I was feeling shitty about myself, like, gosh, I'm wound up in rehab. It's like a, out of a movie, you know, like I, I, I didn't know anyone, or at least in my head that had been to treatment. And so it was like, Jesus, man, but it still wasn't even close to as shitty as I felt <laughs> for the last few months. And so I was like, whatever, you're here, you're not dead. You didn't kill anybody else. Get it together, do this thing. And, and also all that money, you know, borrowing all that money from my family. I was like, do not blow this, mm-hmm. not an option, mm-hmm. not okay. You know, and I felt like I had an opportunity to try to regain the respect and the love of these people that I was pissing on for a long time. I remember sitting through that and being like, well, I can't take it back. I can't undo all the bad things that I did, but I can now not do that anymore. And that's a hard thing to sit with, but it was a lot better than the alternative. Was that a voluntary, I mean, could you have, day day 16, could you have walked out or do they have some sort of restraining policy? No, you could go anytime. You could walk out. I watched, I watched people come in, in and out every day. So how did you, how did you, like, how, how close did you get to leaving to just like, Never, never crossed my mind. It didn't, no you, you were in. Uh-uh. Yep. Yep. Huh. No, it was, there was no way, like I. You know, again, those three days before I got to treatment, I went through a, a, a chemical withdrawal that is a really uncomfortable thing. But like through it, there was some sort of like, I don't know what you call it, like masochistic like feeling where I was like, I have never felt this bad before. But if this is the path, fine. Do what you got to do, body. <laughs> like whatever this is going to take, if I don't die... I'm going to make it. I was so committed. And so there was just no, because I felt like all of a sudden, you know, there were glimmers of hope, like, oh, maybe I, what am I going to do next? What can I do with my life? Like, what would it be like? Maybe it's going to be good. I'm not sure. And, and each day there'd be a little more of that and a little less of the shame and the shit. Um, but now it never crossed my mind to leave. No way. Like, there was no way I could do that to the people, all these other folks that I had felt so bad about. What contributed to that glimmer of hope? Because I heard you talk about like this the, before, like in the dark place, this fear of admittance, this fear of judgment, this fear of, and, and lack of ability to see mentors that have maybe done this before, walked the sobriety path. So say more about the glimmers of hope that you noticed in, in treatment. I remember, um, I was, I was pretty old in that group. Um, the like median age is probably more like 19 or 20 and I was 39. So I was kind of like grandpa in the house. It was all dudes. There was a women's house and a men's house. And then we would go together at a treatment center during the day. But when you went home, it was like, you know, uh, guys and girls. And in that house with those boys, I was 
teaching these knuckleheads how to make a fucking omelet like they, they never they didn't know how to cook they they we were talking about music and i felt right away like the old days like i i can be a mentor i can help these guys and they let me right in because i was just as messed up as they were um but i was 20 years older than them those were the best days in there and i remember having conversations with guys who were ready to leave who were who were gonna leave they were gonna go use and i remember talking about it with them and and remembering what it's like to be that leader that i've always known that i am and so as soon as those opportunities started to happen in treatment that was really probably the main source of hope and then it was also the incredible staff. These people were really good at it. Um, I, I, I sat with a therapist, you know, every other day or whatever it was. And then in all these group sessions and started to crack it open and started to understand addiction. And it was a very uh, multifaceted approach to treatment. So there was spiritual conversations. There was a lot of science we learned about neurotransmitters and you know different uh neuroplasticity and all these terms and then we went and did yoga and then we went and walked in the mountains and then we went to meetings 12 steps and so there was just a you know nutrition mattered we were eating good food and and there was so there was just a very you know varied approach and throughout all of that i i found little things that just made me feel good. It felt good to eat a salad. It felt good to exercise. It felt good to do anything good for me because it had been so long since I had done anything good for me. All I did was poison my body over and over and over and feel shitty and then just keep doing it. And so the smallest thing like writing in a journal or even just choosing the, the glass of water over the Coke, a cola, was like a source it was like the smallest little things would just like give me this boost um and all of that pulled pulled me through the doubt and the fear that was all definitely still there but it's a lot of little moments nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy that is Billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from. That is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan Leaf for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver-area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you.
So John, we were talking about your process through treatment and you talked about, you know, I, I finally cracked open in the treatment program. And so I'm just kind of curious what you mean by what you cracked open or what was the vulnerability that you reached? Well, yeah, I cracked open in a lot of ways in treatment. You know, there's a a physical piece to it in the early stages with withdrawal that it literally feels like your body's going to rip in half. Um, <laughs> so there's that. And, and then emotionally, you know, it was an opening to admitting to myself and to others that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict and having, and, and, the program very deliberately makes you say it over and over. You have to verbalize it, you know, in every meeting you go to and every session you have to say it. I understand why now it, it annoyed me early on, but it annoyed me because I resisted it because I don't want to be an alcoholic and I certainly didn't want to tell anybody that I was. And so I started to become, I guess, comfortable if that's possible with reality of the situation and and as i shared that as i let that in as i cracked open and the vulnerability came out of me it uh it really blew my mind in that it had the exact opposite effect that of, of everything i'd been afraid of i gained respect from people i had more authentic conversations immediately and ultimately felt better about myself because I was telling the truth. Yeah. So very, very much not what I thought, you know, and then once I got there and I was obviously in this controlled environment, I was in a closed space where I wasn't having to admit it to the outside world. I was only having to admit it at that point to my fellow addicts who are in the treatment center and the staff that's paid to listen to me, right? It's a whole nother bear when you step out the door. But in there, I figured out that it actually helped to admit it and say it out loud. So John, you, you did the 30, the 30 days of rehab and you, and you had, you stayed, you stayed with it. You had, you had the success needed. Uh, can you, can you walk us through kind of the end leaving and then what does your immediate post rehab life look like? Yeah, I've, I've said this before, but I I'll say it again, that the only day that's scarier than the day you walk into treatment is the day you walk out. It is one of the most intense like experiences of my life. I was really, really afraid all I saw were beer signs in every window and the culture and like, I had just had so much fear around relapse. Um, and it was, it was, it was terrifying. It was really scary to walk out the door because there's so much security in that facility and in that, you know, program, um, which is, you know, the only way I think to, at least for me, and then I, uh, so I had to figure out what to do. And the only choice, I mean, I, I had quit my job very abruptly. I did not return to the Caribbean. So there were, uh, there were loose ends to tie up. There were phone calls to make and, um, and I had no income 
at the point at that point and no job and so my only plan was to retreat all the way home so at 39 i moved into my dad's basement and so i was back in wisconsin um living living with dad and my stepmom and um you know was pretty pretty defeated. I spent a lot of time in the basement um, at my dad's house. I went to two or three meetings a week uh, there in in uh, in Wisconsin. I taught myself to meditate. In that time, I had been introduced to meditation in treatment, and I learned to meditate in the basement at my dad's house right after treatment. I got a job as a substitute teacher at the school I went to and uh, uh, went in there and, oh, it was tough those first few days. Definitely, there were teachers there who taught me uh, that were still around, you know, and, and my mother was, in a, was a, an accountant at the school district for many, many years. Everybody knows who I am when I walk in the school. And everybody knows what happened <laughs> and why I was home. And it was tough, but at the same time, I I love to teach. And it, it was such a good decision. Like I, you know, I was making a hundred bucks a day as a as a substitute teacher. And I in in the three or four months I was there, I taught every grade from four K to twelfth. I was all over the place. And I was just starting over, literally. I mean, I had left that, I left that community in nineteen ninety-eight. And I returned in 2019 and that place nurtured me as a child and it nurtured me again. And I healed in that space. But underneath it was a bit of a, a black cloud of, I have a boat in the Caribbean <laughs> that I have to deal with. I have some pretty hard phone calls to make. Uh, to, to connect with the people who I let down, who I left hanging. You know, um, I had a fairly large bill to pay uh, with paying back the, the farm for treatment. I just, I had some hard stuff I had to deal with, but, and I did that. I dealt with all those things, but, um, but mainly it was just about, you know, crawling back home, you know, with a big, backpack full of shame and uh and starting again so john you talked about in the past that there's a tendency to move away from emotion to avoid feeling to either escape through changing seasons or drink and so here you are leaving rehab and you're holding your fear you know facing the fear of going home facing the shame of um looking at these people in the eye, you know, and, and that storytelling, you're telling yourself, everyone's looking at me. What was different for you in working with that fear and that shame post-treatment? You know, it was a lot different. I don't know. I, I just, it, it was uh, such a change to simply sit with however I felt at the time and know that drinking right now is going to make this worse. I am certain of that. And that's something I held to very tightly. 
And no matter how bad I felt, and I felt pretty bad at times about myself, I had, I had hope. I had hope. I had a feeling that I hadn't had in many years and it carried me through and it, and, and once I sat with those feelings for, for just a few moments, usually they would pass pretty quickly because I knew that a trip back down the old road was, was infinitely worse than how I felt now. And so just, just be that and, and move on. Um, and I did, I did a lot of journaling and like I say, I sat and meditated and I shared at meetings and I learned to just be with however I feel as opposed to mask it, move on, bury it, uh, because I learned that lesson the hard way. So it's like, well, don't do that. <laughs> did your did your relationship with your dad change? You know, I heard you say you moved into the basement, but not a lot else about that relationship. Not really. You know, we still didn't really talk about what happened. You know, dad and I just, uh, there's a lot that goes unsaid in that relationship. And, and I've detached from the need to discuss things with him. I don't worry about it. And um, there are things we talk about, but not a lot. And there's a huge comfort in just being near the guy. I spent more time with my dad than anyone I know as a kid because we worked together. My dad worked a lot, but I was also working with him. And so we have a, a comfort in projecting together and working on stuff and, and doing things. And, and, and even though we're not digging into the details of how I feel and what I've been through, um, there was an immense comfort in just being in his presence and knowing that I was safe there. And um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Our relationship, it didn't, it wasn't that different. And I'm kind of glad it didn't feel that different. It was still him and me and this is what we do. And he was happy to have me back. We had a lot of fun. We, we, we did, some fun hunting together and hanging out and um, just enjoyed that, that time. And, and, and it was always the feeling that he's like, no matter why you're here, I'm glad you're here hmm. because I left when I was 18, I ran for the Hills and I know that broke his heart. And so any reason for me to come home was, was fine with him. You were in the, you're in your dad's farm basement in Wisconsin and you live in Idaho now, so at some point you left the basement. Tell us about that. Where'd you go? What's what's going on there? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's quite the tour. But basically, I had a boat in Grenada in the Southern Caribbean, and the original plan was to sell the boat to the company down there. That didn't happen, so I had to go get it. And so I packed up a bag and headed south and uh, was like super terrified. I mean, this was, it was like March, 2020. I took off and I was going to sail the boat to Galveston, Texas, ship it to Seattle where there's a great market for that particular boat, put it in charter and sell it. And the idea in my head was just close this book. I'm done. And I got to Grenada 
left Grenada on the 15th of March, 2020. And anyone listening can probably anticipate like plans got changed. Um, the pandemic broke out in America during that time. I was out sailing. I didn't even know. The trip got halted in the U.S. Virgin Islands and all the plans went away. Everything vaporized. No deal in Seattle. No charter. No sale. No job. <laughs> Holy shit. I've been sober for like three months. I was a mess. And luckily, I was with a very close friend of mine named Jenny who held it together and helped me navigate the most uncertain time of my life. I was still dealing with trying to just walk the earth and not get drunk. And let alone, now I'm thrown into the middle of this like crazy adventure with, with a very uncertain outcome. And it was on the boat in St. John when we had the conversation about, you know, she asked me very directly, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted? <laughs> because you're stuck on a boat. It's like why I have small talk, you know? And, and that's when I, I first breathed the idea of, I want to give away this thing that I do. I, I want to take people on outdoor trips for free. And, and she just looked at me and she's like, well, let's do that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did, we penciled out the nonprofit dog smile adventures was born that day, sitting on the boat. We started making phone calls and eventually we were able to sail the boat to Florida. And then I flew out West, rented a tr truck, borrowed a trailer, drove all the way from Portland to South Florida got the boat, hauled it to Lake Ponderay, Bayview, Idaho, and put it in, returned the gear, and went down the road of launching my own business. Um, I've never run a business. I've never run, certainly not a charity, um, and was so hyper-focused on that, that that mission, I, I am a firm believer that that mission really kept me sober is I was so focused, but it was exactly what I needed. I was in motion, very purpose-driven. I'm going to do this thing no matter what, and I did it. And the, the, the time went fast, and I was able to, you know, stay sober and keep moving. And I didn't have a lot of trouble with sobriety during that because it was just so engaging. And, and then, yeah, so by July of 2020, I was back in the panhandle of Idaho with a sailboat that I bought in Antigua uh, a few years ago and had, would never have dreamt in a thousand years that I would ever be in Idaho, but that's what happened. And I'm still here. There that is. <laughs> that's the shortest version of that story I've ever told. So there's something you said that that was um, I can't remember exactly the words that you used, but like I didn't have a hard time staying sober or I didn't have trouble staying sober during that period. There are other times post treatment where you had trouble with your sobriety. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, the one that comes to mind, the worst was was probably last fall. So fall of 21, I ran my first fundraising event for my nonprofit and 
we did incredibly well. We had a $25,000 goal that I thought was super lofty and we raised $64,000 in 90 minutes for this program. This thing that I made up sitting on the back of a boat in St. John a year and a half before, like we had this incredibly successful fundraiser and, but we did it online. And so there was just a few people sitting in a room, you know, and the laptops closed and everyone was crying and hugging. And then all those other people went home to their families. And I walked out the door and was overwhelmed by the strongest alcohol craving I've ever had and was terrified, drove back to the place I was house sitting, did not leave that house for three days due to fear of I was going to go straight to the bar. I didn't know how to celebrate. I had no clue what to do with success. The high highs were always bigger parties than the low lows for me. It was the wins when we really got messed up, when it was like gloves off, party time, you know, whatever. And so here was one of the greatest achievements of my life and this fundraising thing and my my idea, my nonprofit's now funded for another year. And what should have been, you know, a high time turned into an absolute nightmare for me. It was awful a couple days. When you get sober, the the pulse waves of your life level out. You know, the, the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low. And so I went from a life of living at 11 or 1 on the volume knob mm-hmm. with a real steep curve in between to kind of fluctuating between like 5 and 8. Most of the time, like, I'm not that bad. I'm not that good either. Just kind of doing my thing. And, and that change is, is wild. I get cravings. I deal with it, you know. So it comes and goes. There's a great song by uh, Jason Isbell about sobriety and says it's, it gets easier, but it never gets easy. Um, you know, and, and I, I say those words all the time. I'm like, the time goes by and it is easier than it was. A year ago, that's for sure, but it's still not easy. I still think about it every single day that at some point. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't have to put some energy into being sober. It's the truth. A Lake Ponderay size thank you goes out to John Totten for continuing to tell his story. The next and final episode of this cluster is live and ready for you to listen. That next episode explores John's new guiding program where he runs sailing trips in Idaho. Today's sponsor is the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealerships. Find them on the web at www.nissanusa.com and also on Instagram. You can find a dealer locator link on their website. In today's episode notes, you can find links to various organizations that can provide support if you or someone you know is looking for support related to mental health for river guides. An additional thank you goes out to Jenny Feebig for joining me to co-host these episodes. She is with us for each episode in this cluster. Her website is jennyfeebig.com. That is www.jennyfeebig.com. All of our music is created and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. I bought in. I had bought, I bought in, in the bathroom, man. I I say that like I, I had that moment where I was like, all right, it's game day, pull your shit together. You have a chance here.